Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the great pleasure of having Elon Gebner-Dales with us. Elon is the Executive Director of Yes for Schools USA. Elon spent the first decade of his career as a filmmaker, film producer, stage performer, actor, and director, with a focus on documentary work of personal and social transformation. During that time, he also founded the nonprofit Building Blocks Project, which served Philadelphia through community arts and empowerment programs for youth, including poetry and theater festivals, and volunteer-driven arts programming in schools and prisons. During this process, Elon discovered his passion for teaching and addressing stress and violence in the lives of youth. He worked as an advisor for the School District of Philadelphia, building public-private partnerships to bring arts programs back into schools, and helped produce a literacy program weaving art history into elementary school literacy lessons. Concurrently, Elon studied with renowned naturalist and wilderness survivor instructor Tom Brown and established programs bringing educated youth into immersive experiences in nature. Elon was a founding instructor of Project Flow, a summer leadership academy bringing youth from across the socioeconomic spectrum to study social activism around environmental issues, and specifically those pertaining to water. In 2011, Elon became a YES Youth Empowerment Seminar instructor, and he currently serves as the Executive Director of YES for Schools USA, with a focus on supporting educators and educational leaders to find personal tools for self-care and build stress-free, violence-free learning environments within schools across the country. Elon teaches yoga, meditation, and stress reduction workshops and trains new teachers through the Art of Living Foundation. He has led workshops and presented at numerous conferences and forums including Learning and the Brain, New York State Conference of School Superintendents, Wharton Business School, Harvard University, and the International Association for Human Values, Human Values Awards. Elon graduated from Brown University, magna cum laude, with a BA in Art Semiotics and Theater. So welcome, Elon Gepner-Dales. How are you? Um, Absolutely wonderful. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? Certainly. Awesome. Can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Yeah, certainly. My path to leadership maybe started quite early in a natural propensity to bring people together. I was always an organizer, largely of celebration. I was an only child, so I don't know if there was an element of that where I always wanted to build a group around me. Um, did a lot of organizing and into college and beyond. Mm-hmm. I also felt a real sense of responsibility when I saw kind of a need. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something I felt, I had strong opinions, and I thought I might as well take some action when I could. So. This specific work came very unanticipated. I was uh, really a filmmaker and performer by trade and craft, and some things shifted in my plans after I graduated from college. As they usually do. As they tend to. Yeah, the big dream fell apart, and I didn't get the the funds to go shoot the film I was hoping to, and I ended up back in the last place I wanted to be, in Philadelphia, in my community. Is that your hometown? That's where I grew up, Mm. yes. And I grew up in a very wonderful place, Germantown, in Philadelphia, that is really on the line between one of the wealthiest parts of the city and not so far away from some of the poorest and and highest needs environments. And I had a a unique opportunity to go to an incredible school from a neighborhood where nobody else went anywhere but the local 
public school, which was one of the most violent and struggling schools in the city at that time. Mm -hmm. And I felt very close to my peers in my neighborhood growing up. They were my, my friends and, mm -hmm. and team. And, and brothers. My brothers. Sisters. Exactly. <laughs> and then I, I went away to school. I came back. One was dead. One was in prison. And one had three kids. Mm -hmm. And it was such a stark explicit example for me of the privilege I'd had in my education mm -hmm. uh, and it brought me into my local public school that I had never visited mm -hmm. and saw the needs there for services that had really been saving grace in my life you know the arts specifically were really a foundation for me through my childhood the place that I navigated my own struggles and my own angst as a youth and pain and mm -hmm. Uh, when I saw that they weren't there, they were being ripped out at the time, it was kind of in the midst of No Child Left Behind, and lots of our programs were shutting down across Philadelphia and across the, the nation, and it really hit me. So I started volunteering. That opened a door that I never anticipated ever, which was to be working in schools and working with kids. I fell in love. I fell mm -hmm. in love with the young people I was working with, and volunteering in one school turned to 5, 10, 15, and soon I was working with a nonprofit. Uh, enterprise that I had founded with some friends and a cohort of us were volunteering in schools and prisons across Philadelphia. That oh. dramatically changed my life and my interests and my purpose. I really found my purpose in mm -hmm. that space. So it... Uh, and so what were you doing there? Volunteering, doing what? Bringing arts opportunities into the schools, essentially teaching poetry, doing theater programs between schools, bringing kids from different schools and different communities together to do theater projects, uh, doing film, having kids tell their stories about their lives, making short documentaries with them, bringing in artists, friends of mine who were graffiti writers and break dancers oh, wow. and drummers and rappers to do work with the kids, allowing them to have a space to share their voice and express and connect with themselves and have their lives told by the mediums that they connected with. So what was I there doing? I was really connecting and, mm -hmm. and sharing, but also very quickly organizing other artists to do the same. And that became a lot of my work, and very organically. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned something that just speaks to me, connecting, which is really key in leadership. So you connected with your students, you connected also with others, and you really, in essence, shared your vision with them and brought them along, which is really another character of a leader. So that's awesome. So how would you describe your leadership style? I think in the way I'm sharing, I would say collaborative is a key element of it. I delight in working with teams often. I would also say very much lead by example. The way it grew was that I felt a need and I felt called to it and then I stepped in and then said, all right, who can join me in this process? So I definitely feel the power of the team to be the key opportunity in really making significant impact mm -hmm. and yet most of my journey has started with kind of taking a step myself somewhere where I felt the need and then looking around seeing who I could learn from and who I could work with. And my current work is now far removed from the arts. It's really in bringing yoga and meditation and stress reduction into schools. And that came in a very personal way because I needed it. You know, I found that in this process of serving young people in the way that I was familiar through the arts, I was burning out. And I was watching all these educators that I so deeply admired and respected who really quickly became my heroes in the schools that I was working with because I saw the way they showed up day in and day out to serve young people across the city and they were exhausted and they were dropping out left and right. I mean, the burnout rate in Philadelphia at that time was like over 50% for new teachers, the attrition rate of new teachers entering system. So I was in the same boat. I was ready to give up on this thing that I was falling in love with because it was just so overwhelming, the need, and it was mm -hmm. exhausting. And then I had a series of experiences of, of meditation and these specific practices through this program that were truly transformative for me. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I really couldn't give a greater gift to both the students, but also the adults, the teachers, the parents, the communities that I was working in that I cared so deeply about, than to provide them with the tools to effectively accomplish their work, whether that was learning or teaching or parenting, in the face of all the challenges and adversity that were necessarily built into the environment and weren't going anywhere, right? right? So, so that's what you're doing now. You're the executive director of of Yes for Schools. So. Yes for Schools. Tell us about that. Sure. I had the experience first of a program called Yes Plus, which is taught in universities across the U.S. and it is taught by the Art of Living Foundation. It's an amazing 
program that provides tools for young adults to more skillfully navigate the challenges of their world. And it's very interesting, I was actually introduced to the work through the work I was doing in the arts. I was helping coach the Philadelphia Youth Poetry Slam team. And the lead coach and the team were at a national competition in DC and the opponents, the DC team, were doing these breathing techniques at the start of the competition and they proceeded to wipe the floor with us supposedly. I actually wasn't there. <laughs> For that event, but my dear friend, the coach, came back and he had heard from their coach about this program, yes, that the kids had done, that these poets had done. They gave them the edge. They gave them the edge. They gave them the, the je ne sais quoi, the zhuzh. Uh, they had this energy. To beat energy, you down. <laughs> right? To take us out. Right. But their charisma and their presence uh, was exemplary. So he heard about this program, yes, that they had done, which is the Youth Empowerment Seminar. Mm -hmm. and it involved yoga and breathing and life skills for young people and there was a program called Yes Plus taking place at University of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. My colleague took the course and then came raving to me saying you need to do this and at first I wasn't so deeply interested. I'd actually been meditating for some time at that point. It had really served me in a huge way and I mm -hmm. felt, oh I know this. And then eventually the, the right opportunity came, you know, I had that arrogance that I've got this. And the right opportunity came and I took the course and it was a watershed moment for me. Twofold. A, the practices for myself, largely these very specific breathing techniques that are deeply rejuvenating and cleansing, that just eliminate stress from the system and just bring a sense of ease that lasts, energy and ease that lasts as you integrate it in your life. That and, was and it works because I feel your energy, and I'm even more relaxed as I'm speaking to it's you. It's so juicy. <laughs> it wonderful. just works. There's just no question. I mean, the science is profound. I'm happy to get into that also. But, you know, from my experiential level at that time, mm -hmm. it was a game changer. And it was actually a time when I was still struggling. I was mm -hmm. still feeling overextended and really stressed out, and even dancing in and out of depression that I had fought with during my childhood, which had really been... Mm -hmm. My need for the arts, and I describe it as a need, was because I dealt with a lot of depression when I was young, and the arts yeah. was a safe space and a release for me. It was a healing environment. Mm -hmm. That depression would come and go, and I would self-medicate and do all sorts mm -hmm. of things that didn't really serve me. But even as I had learned yoga and meditation and other things that were helping me, nothing had the impact of this breathing process. Um, I was able to just shift so many elements in my life and feel really resistant to stress. It was almost like I had a Teflon shield around me. And I'd walk into the same environments that used to stress me out and they just wouldn't get to me. And I would just oh, be cool. peaceful and smile and light and had energy and people were asking me what's going on with you. I'm like, I'm breathing and they're like, I'm breathing too. I'm like, well, mine's better because something's working really well here. So that was one. The other thing that was such a revelation for me was realizing how these tools could be shared with young people. On that course, it was taught primarily through games. It was very experiential, nothing was didactic, it wasn't do this, do that. It was a series of processes that were interactive and playful that you'd go into and you'd have your own discoveries. Your, oh, the, it was question-based, right? Mm -hmm. Socratic, you would get good questions and you'd chew on them and your own discovery would come out of it and then it would be supported by an experiential process that was entirely your own. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing dogmatic and there was nothing esoteric. It was like mm -hmm. the highest knowledge that one can give, really the knowledge of the self, of human capacity. Yet it was done in this simple, playful way. And so that struck me. And then I had the opportunity the following weekend to go to D.C. and meet one of my great mentors and teachers, a gentleman named Bill Herman, who has really been the, the major proponent and lead instructor and course developer of Yes for Schools in the U.S., um, a longtime teacher and artist. And I met him and I met a number of other teachers. And I was so inspired by them and their presence, their energy, their joy and spirit and play, and also the testimonials that they shared and showed in videos of young people going through the course and seeing how profound the transformation was for these kids, kids who were the same as the kids that I was working with in Philadelphia. And I realized that these were teachers that I could bring into the schools I worked, some of the toughest schools in the U.S., and the kids would relate with them. These were young men and women from across the country who were from communities that uh, were similar to the one I was working with and really had lived it and mm -hmm. were sharing now an alternative. So I wanted it immediately and I said, come to Philadelphia, bring all your teachers. And just there wasn't the staff at that time. It was a handful of teachers running around the U.S., just really vigilantes of love, you know, I mean, well, <laughs> just spreading beautiful. themselves. It's just, I'm, I'm and, really smiling because yeah. I see how impactful that can be because it's so needed. There is so much stress in the schools. Teachers 
administrators are dropping. I mean, I've heard so many stories, even after they retire, they get sick. 85% of doctor visits in the U.S. are stress-related. Yeah. It is the number one threat to our national wellness, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Young people in urban areas, a recent Harvard study showed, have higher rates of PTSD than vets returning from war. Oh, my goodness. These are our children. Mm -hmm. You're asking them to learn. They're processing yeah. trauma. What's going to be the priority? That's right. There's nothing more malleable and interested in learning than a human young person. The human child's brain learns like nothing on this earth. No supercomputer has that capacity. But overwhelm it with trauma and stress, put it in survival mode, and you think it cares about math? So I have the highest respect for all of the subjects that we provide in our schools. I love learning. But I know that until we can address the minds where the learning happens, until we can provide the young people and the adults who provide that service with the tools to actually be present in the teaching and learning, it's always going to come second. Yeah. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? Until mm -hmm. philosophy is the luxury of the well taken care of, as long as we're dealing with our basic needs, and those basic needs can be social pressures and anxieties, all the things that we relate with as a threat. You know, we're not able to go to these higher cognitive functions. We're not able to process and learn and take in because mm -hmm. we're just addressing our safety, our basic needs. Mm -hmm. And if we're stretched thin and overwhelmed and pouring our hearts out like so many teachers and social workers and adults are, and we don't know how to refill that cup, then at some point the well runs dry, right? right? Or it breaks. Mm -hmm. It breaks down. And to me, that's the most tragic thing when you have people who are willing to commit their lives to the service of education. In a country like ours where, frankly, it isn't highly rewarded. You know, a teacher's salary is not what it should be. The respect for the profession of education is not what it deserves to be. So people who do this are doing it for the right reason. And when they're dropping out and they're burning out, it's because they're overwhelmed. Right, right. You know, so to address that to me is baseline. And we have the tools. We have the technology. The technology is there. It's a question of reframing how we approach this, our priorities, and saying, okay, if I have this specific need to provide English literature, right, how do I create fertile soil in the mind for this learning, right? We have all this incredible content. How do we provide this fertile soil? How do we prime the canvas so that that learning can happen? And that is, for me, really exciting because when young people have the experience of, wow, my mind is calm, one of the videos I saw in mm -hmm. this very first introduction I had to the program was a kid from Southside Chicago saying, after the breathing, I felt like my brain had more space. Oh, my. <laughs> I'll never forget that clip of watching this young man look with such sincerity and such reflection saying, I feel like my brain has more space. Mm. I mean, like all day long, we're talking about early childhood education and how we can create this opportunity for learning and there you have a young person saying wow I feel capable I feel open I feel expanded mm -hmm. I feel inspired I feel ready a kid who was in many ways a quote-unquote problem mm -hmm. was a challenge for the teacher often but you know that all these challenges are coming out of uh, the struggles of that young person right we act out when we're overwhelmed it's not that there's no bad kid mm -hmm. right. Anyway, I'm preaching to the choir here, but... No, you know, what I love is that you have this passion. You see the need, you have a passion, but you also step into, what do I need to do? To be the us. change we wish to see in the world. And so it's not just pointing out these are the things that are wrong, but or not quite right, but also stepping into a solution that people can embrace, that there's something we can do about it. I mean, our listeners are mostly ed leaders and teachers, and we've all experienced that. But it's so refreshing to hear that there is something that can help us kind of flip the switch and do something different, because we all see that there's a need. At least I hope we all do. Um, so can you share with us any quotes about leadership that speak to you? Yes, and uh, I have so many, but one came to me this morning, and so mm -hmm. I'm going to share it in context of also giving a gift to all of your listeners, and that sure. is the gift of an app. So ah, there's nice. an app that I use <laughs> regularly. I've grown mm -hmm. to love it called Sattva, S-A-T-T-V-A. It's a free download, it's very simple, and it's 
a meditation app and tool and mm-hmm. it provides many guided meditations and timers and it's wonderful and it's a great way also to stay connected with your peers and others and give them a little bit of challenge but one of the things is when you complete a meditation on this app you get a little quote of inspiration and the one I got this morning really struck me and it's from Sri Sri Ravi Shankar who is an international humanitarian leader and meditation instructor and actually the founder of the S program originally and of the Art of Living programs and all the programs under the International Association for Human Values which is the actual parent organization under which I work and to provide services in uh, many environments of society from prisons through a program called Prison Smart to mm-hmm. vets returning from war through a program called Project Welcome Home Troops uh, wow. to corporate boardrooms across the U.S. Uh, TLEX, Transformative Leadership for Excellence, is an amazing program that works from everything from Accenture and BCG to Harvard Business School and Wharton, inviting people inside of those environments to really address the mind and, and the being first. Anyway, to your question awesome. of the quote, what I read this morning was, the world is your teacher. When you are always looking to learn, you stop underestimating others. Humility dawns in your life. Mm. For me, this is so powerful as a leadership quote because leadership is a process of problem solving constantly Mm -hmm. and finding answers and having answers, ideally, but even more so and far more valuable, being open and being in the state of constant learning. You know, the leaders who really inspire me are those who are in the state of constant learning. Right, who mm-hmm. are listening, not putting themselves above, but observing and understanding that the child has the answer. You want to know what's not working? The child has the answer. You know, you want to know what's not working in school? The teacher has the answer, right? That we are all in a process of constantly growing and gaining information. And the only thing that really stunts that is when we get closed and think we know. And as long as we think we know, we're stuck, we're small, we're constricted. But as long as we think, I don't know, but with that joy, the joyous I don't know, the wonder of, huh, what can I learn here? What else is here? What do you have to share with me? That's rich and exciting. And that brings just an influx of new ideas and new possibilities and new solutions. And that, you know, that brings me back to what you were sharing before. There is so much change that needs to happen in education. and it's so easy to become jaded. It's so easy for educational leaders to feel overwhelmed and saying, well, look, I'm just plodding along in my little environment. I've got, or big environment, my school, my district, my classroom, I'm doing my best here, but how do I change this? Well, there's no better source of the solutions for our broader system than those folks. Mm-hmm. But if we're all overwhelmed surviving in our environments, right. Right. we're not gonna come up with the actual transformative opportunities. We need that extra energy that extra ease, that extra calm, that distance from it, from the emotion of it, the stress of it, to be able to find, just as you said, new solutions, new answers to do something different. When we're in our rut, surviving, we don't do something different. But But we're expecting different results. We're expecting different results, right? The the (laughs) definition of insanity. But if we can take that time for self-care, that break for ourselves each day, and in that moment, find space and reflection and come at it from a new approach, And with this beautiful perspective of what can I learn today? What have I not seen? Who am I not listening to? Then there are solutions around every corner and opportunities at every turn. And that's exciting. It also alleviates the pressure of being a leader in ways, right? You don't need to know everything. You don't need to know everything. You can't. You're you're playing one role and everybody else is playing their role and none is actually more important. Mm-hmm. Principal is not a more important than a teacher. Mm-hmm. In fact, the teacher is the contact point, is right. everything. But the principal's role is key, right? And somebody needs to hold that space. But how can the principal and the teacher be truly peers in this process and feel that connection and openness? And if they're both in that place of learning and respect with one another, then it becomes very rich. You so. know, as you're talking, it just brings to mind how we need to value uh, all you're speaking about is valuing other people and valuing what they bring to the table but self-care is extremely important and i think what happens with educators and what happens with ed leaders too is that we don't do that i had a friend that said you have to be your own best friend mm. and to me that was really a new concept what <laughs> How do I do that? But I always remember that. And it's self-love. And that's Mm -hmm. something that 
oftentimes we have to learn because we don't know that and we don't know how to do that. And I don't know whether it's that we don't know it or that we've somehow forgotten it, that it's not really valued or modeled in mm -hmm, our society. Mm -hmm. And we are in a society that is really push, push, push and do more, do more, do more. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, prove your flow, worth, right? Prove your worth. And it is dog eat dog in, in its own way. And we don't have that real respect for balance and self care. And I'm, you know, I do this work because I needed it. I'm sharing this because I'm learning this, yeah. right? I don't get to be some perfect model of this. I have my places where I still can grow tremendously in right. this regard, but I've learned to really value. I know that when I put my time into my self-care, I have that much more to give, and my state of being, my quality of my work and my joy, my life, is so much further and so much better. And that is the thing to prioritize. That is the efficiency I recall Gandhi saying that on days when he had no time, there was too much to do, he would meditate twice as long. Mm. This idea that I need to go in to gain energy to bring out, right? It's like the bow and arrow. To really shoot the arrow far, you need to pull it back further. Mm. If we want to be really impactful in the world, what we need to learn is not how to go faster, 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 but it's to draw deeper, deeper, deeper. Because the deeper we go into our energy, into our capacity, then the further we're going in action. The further we go into silence and rest, the further we go in action. Mm -hmm. These two go hand in hand. Awesome. And so to build a value for that inside of an environment like education that is so service-driven, where people are constantly giving, 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 and pushing, and seeking more, and wishing to perform, and that's great. Let's all perform at the highest level. Let's have our students exceed our wildest imagination as far as their performance, you know? But giving them the tools to actually address the mind first, to have that capacity, is going to yield it. And we see the results. Right. It's nice for me to wax poetic about these things, but you see the results around every corner. Mm -hmm. You see it in the test scores. You see it in the behavioral mm -hmm. shift in the environments we see. You had Joanne Laganda here on your program recently, a dear friend. Her school utilizes the breathing practice daily. They've seen a dramatic over 40% reduction in infractions in the building. They've seen 66% reduction in suspensions. Wow. And this is not standalone. There's a lot of wonderful work happening in that building. I don't right, want right. to, you know. And there shuffle. is. I've been there. Yeah, it's <laughs> tremendous. And, you know, but they've really addressed a culture about care. And they've built in practices that have the capacity to restore the brain function, right? These mm -hmm. are restorative practices for the system. Mm -hmm. And they allow for people to have the space to then really achieve, take yeah. that, that time for quiet that then manifests mm -hmm. in movement mm -hmm. and action and learning. Yeah, and as a leader of the building, she certainly walks the talk. So. Starts with each of us. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Elan, can you tell me what's the best advice you've ever received? You know, it, the first thing that comes up for me is just the encouragement I got from my parents. It's just been that constant through line of my life that these two people, and I was so blessed to have a loving household of two united parents and a space where I was constantly asked, you know, what do you love? What do you want? What is meaningful to you? It was never about outcomes in terms of achieving X, Y, or Z. It was about encouragement to follow what really had meaning, where I would felt purpose, to live a purposeful life, to find my path and those things that were meaning. And so that, as I take more care for young people in educational environments, I become more and more grateful mm -hmm. for what I got there. The other thing that comes up to me is, you know, really my greatest teacher these days in, in my life has been this gentleman, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, the, the founder of this work, because he lives it, mm -hmm. talking about living it. This mm -hmm. is somebody who does work at a global scale like nobody you can imagine. Mm -hmm. He's always on the road dealing with the highest tension situations from environments in the Middle East to negotiating between the FARC and government in Colombia to leading massive movements in Argentina where communities coming together to meditate and stand up for well-being. There's just so much work that this man is doing and he does it all with ease and joy. Right? So he mm -hmm. just embodies that. But something that he shared that has been kind of a guide for me in a very meaningful way has been that if you have a decision to make, you're confused. Wow. Tell us more. If you have a decision to make, you're confused. So 
for me, I am always one weighing many decisions. Mm -hmm. And my life, uh, with this encouragement from my parents to listen to my heart, has been an open one. I've always received the opportunities as far as just the world providing and, and from my, my family to mm -hmm. really listen and follow. And that brings with it plenty of opportunities to feel divided, to want this and that or to seek this direction versus another and in leadership it's constant right mm -hmm. which opportunity do you follow which path do you go down but learning to really see what's happening more so than what i have to do or should do what's happening what's emerging here where's the energy where's the momentum and where's my heart what feels right trusting that intuition is really how i take this in a way it's a decision is a head-based analytical process and we do that all day we're always doing mm -hmm. cost-benefit analyses of what is the right course of action there's so pros much data pros and cons you can right. chew on data all day long you can overanalyze everything you can get stuck in it and I've at many moments in my life professionally and personally been stuck in this over analysis mm -hmm. right and to really move out of that space and say okay I'm not gonna get stuck in the confusion of having to make a decision let me see what decision is happening in me. It's getting a little esoteric here, but I would really describe it as trusting that intuition, the incredible power of intuition. Letting it be informed by the head, but it's the unification of the head and the heart. Um, so what do you do in a situation like that? You stop and meditate? It's not that I need to stop and meditate. It's learning to trust. What do I know, right? No, it's a great question. It's through the practice of meditation that for me, I'm learning to trust my intuition. But it isn't that I need to go meditate on something as much as to say through a regular practice of meditation, what I find is I become much more attuned to my intuition. I become much more trusting. This is also a lot about trust. I loved, I loved, I loved your manifesto oh, you about did. trust. Good it really one. touched me. And, you know, there's learning to trust another individual. There's learning to trust yourself. There's learning to trust the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So if I say, okay, this is what's happening. Let me see what I can do best in this situation. And let me see, what do I feel really drawn to? Let's move, let's go there. Let's take it through 100% to the best of our ability and we'll learn, we'll grow mm -hmm. from it. So- And not to step into fear, but to really trust that. And I, I love that because I'm on the precipice of that, yeah. you know, just trying to figure out what do I do here? Um, but I know what my gut says, and well, I want to do what my gut says. Well, and then, and then there's you know other things that are pulling on you. So sure. I really appreciate that. That's really good stuff. It's really rich. It is good stuff. It's not always easy, but if one practices that trust, as you say, you feel this pull. If we can move with that, there's energy there. Mm -hmm. There's something to it. There's always a good reason to second guess everything. Mm -hmm. That's great stuff. Okay. So, Elan, what does it mean to have a good team? And how would you build or sustain one? Yeah. So for me, to have a good team means everything is possible. Mm -hmm. It means I have dramatically expanded capacity. It's not about me. It's now about us. And there's that energy and that joy of we're in this together, mm. right? Mm -hmm. It's so easy to feel the weight of the world on your shoulders as a leader. There's nothing more isolating than being at the steering wheel. You're looking at principals, superintendents. I bet if you ask 100 principals how isolated and alone they often feel, they'd give you strong testimony to it, right? And yet when you feel really part of a team, that I and that arrogance of that identity fades and it's the joy of we're in this and we can do this so to me the idea of a team fundamentally is the possibility of huge impact and huge success and movement and joy in that process so mm -hmm. I can't think of mm -hmm. anything better the process of building one has so much to do with inspiration and finding the right folks but from a very practical stance to offer some input that might be of value to your listeners. I would say there's a huge, huge merit in having a really formal process to the launch of a team. And this can happen whether that team is new or whether that team is pre-existing and you're looking to shift 
mm-hmm. that environment. So something like a charter building process, for example, where you come together and set your collective visions, address the issues that are there on the table and look at your goals and come to some shared agreements both on your norms, on your way of working, and on your vision and your objectives, mm-hmm. then it's not me needing to lead this team, me needing to drag, me needing to dictate, me needing to guide, but it becomes, okay, this is our, and we're collectively accountable to this. Oh, and what happens if we're not accountable? And now we can move into roles. We don't need to you know, do everything mm-hmm. simultaneously, but there's that uniform agreement, and if that's there, then you have something to pull yourself back to and you have something to guide you. And mm-hmm. then coming back to it and building it, it becomes, for me, this process of building your core values and your core objectives as a collective is essential for success. Yeah, and there might be an explicit challenge, right? I mean, it depends on the situation. This might be the preset goal that this team is designed for, but then, okay, now how are we going to approach this, right? Making it a collectively owned mm-hmm. endeavor. So it's not, one person dictating the goal and setting the direction, but a group agreeing on the direction and then agreeing on the way we're going to walk towards it. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? And there's so many. I think I might go back to what I even already shared about mm-hmm. uh, depression in my life. I mean, if I just think at a really fundamental level, mm-hmm all the challenges are learning points, right? Mm -hmm. Another great leadership quote, Nelson Mandela said, I never lose, I win or learn. That's Mm. such a beautiful mantra for moving. And I generally feel that way about all these hurdles and bumps and bruises along the way, but really the depression and fear and anxiety that I experienced as a young person from age, say, 11 on, it became this need to, to find something. It became this burning need for a resolution. There was, I couldn't just be, I couldn't be passive. It would sap my joy. I could go from elated and happy to suicidal. Mm -hmm. And so there was this thing that I needed to course correct that became a guiding principle of kind of judging, is this serving in my life? And it also brought me very deeply into my empathy. I experienced deep pain, and so I was drawn to those in pain and and wanted to care for. So I think finding my healing journey and then also wishing to share that, and especially with young people. When I first got these techniques Mm -hmm. and realized that I could have had this earlier and saved myself all that BS I went through (laughs) in teens and early adulthood and adulthood, and I was like, oh my God, it was so easy. And I could have had this. And then you realize that I could give it. Mm-hmm. So, Can you give us where they can contact you and get more information about this wonderful program? Sure. So our work, Yes for Schools, you can find on the internet at youthempowermentseminar.org. Mm-hmm. And our parent organization is the International Association for Human Values, IAHV.org. And there you will find other programs similar to ours that offer services to organizations, specifically I mentioned to vets and vet serving organizations to prisons, to businesses and in trauma environments. There's also a program called Sky Meditation, which is available to the general public through our organization, the International Association for Human Values. But even more available, we have a partner organization. It's a totally separate organization, but it's called the Art of Living Foundation. And they use the same technology. It's also founded by Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. And they use the same breath-based tools and meditation practices. And these courses are available across the U.S. in cities mm-hmm. all around the country as well as all around the world in over 150 countries. And that is just an unbelievable opportunity. It is a gold mine of available knowledge. And this is tens of thousands of years of yogic science, explicit science, precious science of how we work and how we function most easily that is now available Mm -hmm. at our fingertips so easily this course brings it all together what you would have to learn through you know hundreds of hours of yoga courses and hundreds of hours of reading so many books and hundreds of hours of studying with many different teachers it has brought together in a simple and digestible program there's a course for younger kids called art excel and all around training and excellence yes is for really teens the youth empowerment seminar Um, Yes Plus, university-age students, 
and then the Art of Living Happiness program is available to the general public, 18 and over, all around the country. Okay. Check it out. You will thank me. <laughs> Go do it and then send me an, I can't a wait. message with how happy you are. <laughs> I'm excited about it. Now, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their culture or climate? Well, the first thing that comes up for me is I don't get to tell anybody anything. You know, mm -hmm. people will find the, the wisdom they need in that situation. And I would offer them compassion mm -hmm. and nurture. But the other thing I would say explicitly is, you know, don't put it all on yourself. Okay, you have a situation that seems to be broken. At least you're experiencing it as such. Others probably are too, right? If this is not working, if the wagon isn't moving, if there's multiple wheels off, then you're not the only person experiencing the jolted ride. So I would say go to the team, bring folks together, and lay it on the table. Okay, say, what do we have here? Very similar to what I was sharing before of this kind of culture building process. Mm -hmm. You know, establish collective ownership in what's happening and really invite others' wisdom. If you're new to the environment and you're struggling with it, you're not the expert on the environment. Yeah, you might bring in something else, right. but then you're going to be that woman or man bringing in this new thing and it's going to be top down. If you don't find the right way to understand where people are, to align yourself with them, to become their ally and support and to learn from them first and foremost, and then build a collective vision mm -hmm. to something else, you get the opportunity to come in and actually empower others to find the solution that you don't yet know. And again, then trust your instinct because your fresh eyes might also be extremely valuable. Other people, just as they might know what's off, they're also stuck in it. And sometimes mm -hmm. it takes a little bit of that outside perspective to be able to offer a new angle, mm -hmm. suggest mm -hmm. something new, but that needs to be done skillfully and with a lot of respect for the foundation people already have and the culture that's existing. You know, I'll just draw one thing. My wife is an incredible human being and she does work in many areas. Uh, one of the things she's doing these days is in development and uh, discussing a lot lately what she sees off in a lot of the development work around the world. She works with the World Bank. And so often we go into environments, we now the West, and mm -hmm. with money or so or with ideas attempt to essentially fix a situation that, that seems off or provide support. But in that process, we often throw away many things that are working. Right? If you take a culture that is established, let's say a culture of corruption, we can agree that this is an issue, right? right? But inside of that culture of corruption are very valuable elements of a culture of trust, a culture of loyalty, a culture of, of intimate connection and support. And if you don't understand how those mechanisms work, and then you just take one top-down solution to something, you're throwing away a lot of the substance that also allows for the potential thriving we tend to be judgmental and that's absolutely true because yeah. I never even thought of that. When you hear corruption, you put a big X and let's take it all down and let's move on. But you're absolutely right. There's Loyalty so, yeah. and commitment, a lot of these things are values. Now, how do you tease out the difference and leverage what has value inside of an environment while adjusting what's off? Mm -hmm. Probably it's not off as badly as you think and probably the people inside it actually see that issue and if they can be supported would be happy to correct it the majority you're gonna have a few who are problematic maybe certain people need to be removed that's part of it that's mm -hmm. part of leadership mm -hmm. but you're gonna have a majority who would be happy to be part of change if they're supported to be the proponents of it instead of simply the recipients of new doctrine that's really great stuff so, Elan, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? I think, as I was sharing, for me, that's really the key and the opportunity. I think it's only fun if you're learning. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it becomes really quite stale. And frankly, you're not very inspiring if you're either the know-it-all or if you're stuck, mm -hmm. right? So. I aspire to it. I notice the moments where I get stuck and I keep asking myself, where's this space that I can learn? I have a lot to learn. I'm learning a lot constantly. Our organization is in many ways, even though we've worked with over 170 schools across the country, in ways is still startup. We're still a smaller team ranging from 15 to 25 people shifting and people really with a lot of startup innovative energy but how to move to that real sustainability and scalability is still a process for us. And I'm learning a lot from educational leaders and business leaders and others who have gone through that maturation process 
from the inspired phase of creation to the maintenance phase. I'm learning a lot in that process of how to empower others effectively. You know, in the startup phase, everybody's asked to wear many hats and mm -hmm. all of our skills are utilized and we're all doing a lot, right? And that's mm -hmm. exciting, it's rich. Mm -hmm. There's a risk in it as a leader to do something I've been guilty of, I know, and yet I, I really genuinely aspire not to be, which is to micromanage, to control, to do yourself because you're doing so many things, right? I have my hand in so many pots often that the question is how to let go of things that you also know how they should be done, you have an idea or that you're attached to, but that really reduces the capacity of a large mm -hmm. team to move, right? So how to balance the trust that is essential in allowing people to come in and to grow themselves and to also take on what the organization and the team needs people to step into while setting people up for success. And that's a place and that not burning out and not burning out. And not burning so out. <laughs> well, not burning myself out, not burning them out because mm -hmm. everybody else is also doing things. So as we invite right. them into more activity, how not to take them from their role into an expanded role that becomes stressful. So, yeah, how not to burn them out, how to set them up for success, how to invite people most effectively to do something that might be a new learning for them as well and trust that they will learn and get it and do it better than I ever could, even if there's going to be, as there always is, a learning period. Mm -hmm. Right, so that I'm really gaining a lot of wisdom from other leaders I see who do a great job not of what I want to call delegating, which has that kind of top-down micromanaging feeling, but really genuinely empowering, mm -hmm. providing opportunity and trusting and knowing that, yeah, this might have its learning curve, but it is for the greater good. And there's a skill in that to identify what opportunities mm -hmm. best suited for which individual and to really listen again to those individuals and hear where they want to grow and step up. Mm -hmm. So. That's great. Now, we may have answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If there was something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? I think I talked about it at a large level, but mm -hmm. in a very explicit level. I would build in specifically time in every single day for self-care. Well, what does that look like? From five minutes a day to 20 minutes a day, twice a day. I would build in time where the entire building stops and uses tools to reset, recharge, uplift. You know, there are many different techniques. I'm totally biased. I think we have the best. There are many that work, mm -hmm. but that commitment to self-care, that commitment to creating an opportunity for every human being to balance the output with the input of the rest and the rejuvenation that we need. Mm -hmm. What is the impact that we've seen by providing breakfast in schools? It's monumental, mm -hmm. is it not? Mm -hmm. I can name a list of principals who are achieving huge success simply by feeding their kids, kids who are not receiving that nutrition. Right. I'm sorry, a bag of chips and Coke just isn't brain food. You know, it, ask any teacher what a kid is like at 1.30 in the afternoon when they had a Coke and chips for lunch and how effective their lessons are going. So we know this, we're starting to accept this at the level of nutrition, but it goes deeper than that. And this is across the entire socioeconomic spectrum, right? I'm talking mm -hmm. often about urban schools, environments that might be lower in socioeconomic means and considered higher needs in certain contexts. That's a loaded term, but mm -hmm. we also work in some of the most affluent districts in the entire country. We work in environments where Students who have every resource at their disposal are taking their lives at rates that blow others out of the water. You're right. Multiple mm -hmm. students per year. And what is that? When we feel pressure, when learning is not joy, but it's expectation, it's either forced on us because we don't want to be here and we don't see the benefit, or we need to achieve in order to receive respect from outside and from ourselves because of the expectations we've placed on ourselves. I have more friends from the school I went to, which had a tremendous amount of privilege, who have died doing drugs and self-harm. Then I have friends who have been lost in the community mm -hmm. I lived in that had tremendous amount of violence. Mm -hmm. So both of those are horrific violence, mm -hmm. not feeling at ease and at peace. So for me, if we know how the brain works, which we're learning more and more through neuroscience, and we understand what it takes to create 
a malleable brain. We understand growth mindset, that real learning happens through challenge and being willing to take risks and stretch and do something you don't know and learn, that it's neuroplasticity, that habits form and we need to reform them, and that the way to make the brain more malleable is through these restorative practices. We have solutions and we need to build them into our day. Instead of just leaving it to people to, okay, before you come to school, do this, and after school, you can use these techniques if you like. If we build it into the day, we're going to see tremendous mm -hmm. success. I went to a Quaker school. I had meeting for worship once a week. That one hour where we would sit in silence, forget anything spiritual, just that time that was a break where you literally couldn't do anything. You couldn't do the homework you were thinking about. You couldn't prepare for the test that was stressing you out. Where you had to sit was the single biggest thing that I missed when I left that school, oh, even wow. though I resisted it when I was young. <laughs> right? I mean, you're sitting there fidgeting, and right? And you're like, oh man, this is boring. This is boring. Right. Being bored is a precious thing. Mm -hmm. To learn, A, to be at peace inside of boredom, to be at peace with yourself. What is boredom? You're bored with yourself? I mean, what is that? You can't be with your own company. What, you need a video game? We're all tied to our gadgets. You need constant stimulation. Who are we if we're bored yeah. by ourselves? Yeah. If we're not at peace with our own mind, what does that mean about us as individuals and as a society? So to build in that space, when we're talking about high-performance learning, when we want kids to excel, to go vastly beyond any metrics that we've identified as the standard or the baseline or the potential, to supersede that, we need to invest in the mind, in the well-being of yeah. the human being. That's great. Now, Elan, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? I'm sharing the things that are kind of freshest on my mind mm -hmm. right now. A little while ago, I was at an airport and I picked up a book by a gentleman, Patrick Lencioni, named The Ideal Team Player. And I read a few pages and it was very interesting to me. And then this gentleman, Bill Herman, who, as I, I mentioned, the real kind of practical founder of Yes for Schools in the US, he read it as well and it really hit him and he shared a number of chapters recently and I, I read those and I'm so grateful that he did. And it speaks about the key qualities in an ideal team player. And we've had a conversation today about teamwork mm -hmm. and how critical that is. And the three that he cites are humility, hunger, and people skills. And I would recommend this book highly for any educator because everything is team building, right? And we want to set people up for success. And it's not just these individual qualities, hunger meaning a passion mm -hmm. for one's activity, mm -hmm. but it's the combination of these elements. Right? What does it mean when we have these three in tandem and how effective is that? For a team. Patrick Lencioni is the same gentleman who wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is also a great book. Great insights, but what's interesting is he also breaks apart what happens if you only have one. You know, what is the humble person that lacks hunger and people skills? What is when you have two of these? You have the people skills and you have the hunger, but not the humility and the politician. Sorry to dirty that name. I have great respect for the gift of service that politicians make often, but right, what is it when you're not in humility and you're kind of navigating towards an agenda and manipulating? and how insidious these different capacities are to a team versus how beautiful they are when they work together. And what's great about the book is it isn't about vilifying anybody for being stuck, but for all of our self-awareness, we each have areas of these that we can grow, mm -hmm. right? So I've even noticed in different moments in my life where different ones of these qualities were lacking or dominant and can see in the different teams I've been in in reflection where I had better balance or less balance because in different contexts, it also expresses differently. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think that's a great book. I've also been reading and haven't finished a book by Stephen Cope called The Great Work of Your Life. And that's an interesting one. So he was a instructor at Kripalu, and this is in the yoga field, and he might even still be, but he looked really at exceptional lives. He really studied people who were, you know, just as kind of Jim Collins looked at amazing businesses. Right, so there's, there's a lot of data at, to this. Yeah, there's data. He really <laughs> looked, he studied these case studies of right. exceptional lives. And right. This book is written from the perspective of an analysis, actually, of the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita, for those who might not be familiar, is a conversation between you know, Krishna and Arjuna on a, a battlefield, this incredibly tense environment of a battle. Arjuna is asking 
questions about what is the appropriate action here. He's in deep conflict between his family ties, which put him literally in conflict with those who are dear to him, and his sense of duty and responsibility. And the process is a discovery of what is our purpose, our dharma being in, in many ways our path, our innate nature and path in life. And so this book is really looking at how do we align with our purpose, that we all have it there, right? And I think as a leader, our goal is not only to move as closely to that in ourselves, but also to nurture everyone who we're able to touch towards that. So it's not about being one thing. It's not about being this. It's about finding that thing which is actually innate. Right? Is it that musical ability that we're looking to nurture in a young person? And do we really leverage that to help them succeed in everything else? Because that is their intrinsic motivation. Right? We're always looking at how do we cultivate intrinsic motivation instead of forcing upon a young person or a peer or a colleague some incentivized objective that is no carrot and stick. But instead, finding that place of motivation where we can become coaches in support of. This, I think, is the key to education, is not teaching, as in stuffing information into, but understanding and helping cultivate, and this is what great teachers do, cultivate the interest and the curiosity in a young person through their intrinsic motivation and then be able to feed that and help create connections where, oh, you're fascinated by cooking. Well, how would you have a restaurant? And oh, a as coach. a restaurant, a you need to manage is, yeah. becoming a coach. Right. As we become coaches, we're valued. See, mm-hmm. if I say I want to be a great basketball player, then the first thing I need is a coach. Mm-hmm. But I give them my permission to push me, mm-hmm. to kick my butt, mm-hmm. because I've stated my goal and my objective, and I'm looking to get there, and right. I'm invested in it. Now that, that coach has real leverage to hold this, well, you said you wanted to do this, so work. Right. right? But if I just tell a kid to work, and I haven't understood what they're committed to, what outcome they're invested in, I've got much less power mm-hmm. because the power has to come from them granting it to me, right? right. It's their trust that they're giving. Absolutely. So I think this book is a beautiful reflection on different ways that people have found their real path and purpose and how we can nurture that in others. Great. Thank you so much for that, Elan. Those are great books, and I wrote them down so I can get them. So what do you do on a daily basis? You have a lot of responsibilities. There are people pulling at you. There's so many needs. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? It's very simple. Meditate twice a day. And do my breathing in the morning with my meditation. The breathing is deeply cleansing. It takes out the stress. It gives a huge amount of energy. The meditation brings me into that calm space, aligns me with my intuition, and gives even more energy. It's the reset. If I haven't had a good night's sleep and meditate in the morning, I'm good. In the afternoon, after a long day, gone through the grinder, you know that feeling at the end of the day where you're toast. It's like all you want to do is go home and drop, but now you have all your responsibilities, your family, work that you brought home with you. That evening meditation, a second day. A clean, fresh second day. That's Mm -hmm. how rejuvenating it is for me. Mm -hmm. So that commitment, I do not drop. For six years, I have not missed these two meditations a day or the breathing and through that no matter what comes and the chaos always comes I'm going to be able to respond in some capacity to the best of my ability so that's what I hold on to awesome yeah so is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to share with our listeners hmm we've covered a lot we've covered a lot of ground (laughs) you know I really appreciate the work you're doing giving attention to the value of coaching, to the value of finding mentorship, to the value of continued learning. You're providing a forum that people can keep gathering additional input, can become constant lifelong learners, even in our crazy schedules. Even as we're working out. As we're working out. So, and that's what I would say. It doesn't take a lot of time. My message, and it's reinforcing with what I just shared, but it can be like, oh, I don't have time to meditate or to learn these other things or put 40 minutes into my school day. That's insane. My biggest message, and maybe I'm being redundant, but that these things just pay off tenfold, a hundredfold in the efficiency and the ease and the quality of your life. So to keep learning, to take a little time to listen to a podcast and gain some new insight and be inspired by somebody doing something and, and come to work the next day in a different way with some juiciness from that inspiration and to take the real time for your own self-care so that you feel the capacity to try something different, the capacity to stretch and learn something new. 
-hmm. instead of just being in that reactive mode where you really can respond differently. Right. Um, that's my Well, Elan, I'm going to steal a, a saying from um, Joanne Lagonda. You have activated my heart. <laughs> and I thank you so much for pouring into me and to our listeners. My pleasure. Thank okay. you for your work. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries, coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.